vision has been to put security in the hands of developers. This is like who we are as a company. It's the guiding principle behind all of our decision making. And if you were to like take anyone at the company, wake them up in the middle of the night, shake them and ask them like, what is this company about? I can pretty much guarantee that that's what they would say. This is Contributor, a podcast telling the stories behind the best open source projects and the communities that make them. I'm Eric Anderson. Everybody, we are welcoming today Graham Nire to the show today. He is one of the creators, uh, or maybe the creator, we'll find out, of Oso. And I'm pretty excited about Oso. What's neat for us, we often do projects that have been around for years and have a lot of history to tell. Here, this is kind of recent memory. So maybe the best place to start would be have you kind of just tell us what Oso is, kind of for context, and then we can dive into how it came to be. Yeah, absolutely. So Oso helps developers add authorization to their applications. So if you imagine, you know, you're a developer and you want to add payments to your e-commerce website, you can use something like Stripe. Or if you want to add SMS to your application, you can use something like Twilio. And if you want to add authorization to your application, like deciding who's allowed to do what once they log in, you can use Oso. And the way that we do that is by giving developers an open source policy engine that comes with a library and a language that they can use to express all kinds of rules around who's allowed to do what. Got it. And now that we know kind of what it is, maybe you can tell us how you got into this situation. Have you been searching for an auth solution for apps for a long time? I mean, yes and no. Like... I think most founders, a lot of this stuff kind of happened organically. So, you know, my background is I worked at a company called MongoDB for many years. And towards the end of my time there, I met um, someone named Sam Scott, who's who's now my co-founder. Sam is um, a brilliant engineer and cryptographer. He had finished a PhD in cryptography recently. At the time, this is now like almost two and a half years ago. Um, and we got together for coffee and, you know, I was thinking about ways to make infrastructure software easier for developers. And Sam was thinking about ways to make security more accessible for developers. And we just kind of clicked I and mean, we met for coffee outside Bryant Park um, in July of 2018 and, and kind of never looked back. And so we started talking to a bunch of security and engineering teams about the kinds of problems that they were facing, primarily related actually at the time to like infrastructure authentication and authorization. And um, I would say, you know, after many meetings and many revisions, what we found was, you know, a lot of teams saying, yeah, 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 infrastructure, that's kind of interesting. But like, I just spent 12 months building an RBAC system, RBAC, which stands for Role-Based Access Control. We were kind of like, what? What are you talking about? That seems like such a solved problem. People were like, yeah, well, you know, it's a solved problem, but it's also one that everyone is solving in a bespoke way over and over and over again. And so we started asking people about that problem, you know, at the application layer. And more and more and more, we find that you sort of end up with these very common paths. You know, small companies start out with a very simple model. You've got a basic user and an admin. It's not really that complicated. And then you start to add a few more roles. And then maybe you want to add, you know, a concept of organizations and teams. And you reflect all this in terms of if statements in your code. And you just sort of keep adding more and more things until over time, you need to do some kind of refactor. And we found tons and tons of companies who reached this tipping point where they need to do like a big refactor, six, 12, 18 months 
a full team of engineers. Yeah. And so we were like, I think we can take everything that we've been doing and put it towards this problem instead. And so that's how this whole thing started. And I don't, I don't want to do too much kind of alternative comparison, but maybe just to clarify things for me, when you first said Stripe for payments and, and other things for Auth, I, I originally imagined Auth Zero. Are you similar or kind of different? Am I bucketing these things the wrong way? No, it's definitely like we play in very similar spaces. And I think for most people who don't spend all their time thinking about the problems, Auth is Auth is Auth. But there's an important distinction, which is Auth Zero primarily deals in authentication, which is effectively getting you to log in. So login screens, you know, social integrations, multi-factor authentication, password reset, stuff like that. What we do is authorization, which is like deeply embedded in the application. Think of some, you know, an application like Salesforce. There are like extremely complicated rules that go well beyond roles that dictate who's allowed to do what inside of Salesforce. You know, in the simplest case, it's about like maybe where you sit in the hierarchy. The head of sales can see the whole forecast but the individual rep can only see their forecast and expressing a bunch of different use cases like that. I mean, so all of that is different from the kind of stuff that Auth0 does. Yeah. So, so Auth0, if you use it, might tell you who you are. This is Eric at the app. And then it kind of throws that over the fence and says, now here's Eric, do what you want with him. And Oso could pick that up and tell you what Eric can do in what context, in what situations, that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think traditionally Auth0 has basically you know, in their documentation said, this is a problem that's deeply embedded in the application. And so this is best suited for you to manage inside your application. Just recently, they've teased in this like rogue Twitter account that they have that they're working on something related to authorization, which is really not that surprising at all, because this is a hard problem that we see a lot of people thinking about. And so like, we view this as incredibly good validation that lots of people, I think, increasingly now are going to start to um, spend more and more time looking at this problem space because it's so important and so many companies are trying to solve it. Except at this point now, we feel like we have a pretty good head start working on it. Okay, so you've got this idea, great idea, and a co-founder sounds like a great co-founder. You then go to work, and at what point are you decide this is an open source project as well as a company? From pretty early on, we were more or less convinced that it, we wanted it to be an open source product. There's kind of two reasons for that. We experimented with a few different ways of making this available to the developer from like a consumption model standpoint. And after not that long, settled on a library as the, the best way for a developer to use this. And the main reason for that is that authorization logic is so tightly coupled with the application. So specifically, like I'll give you an example of like what I mean by that. Imagine that you're building Google Docs. So you might write a rule inside of Google Docs that says, you know, the person who owns a file can view that file or can edit that file or can delete that file. So that's like a pretty simple rule. But all the data about who owns what file is stored as part of the application. And so in this way, like all the authorization logic is like very tightly wound up in the application logic and data. And so we very quickly determined that the library was the right way to go because it makes it easiest for us to facilitate having access to that data. So from there, you basically have two reasons why it makes sense to make this available as an open source product. So number one, for developers, there's not really a strong history and recent memory of closed source 
libraries, particularly closed source libraries that are effectively for like a, a language, which is what we are. And so I think like a lot of developers would have a really hard time thinking about embedding something that that's so tightly coupled with their application if it's closed source. And I, I totally understand that because it's just so tightly wound up in what they're doing. It just feels too risky. So that's number one. And then number two, because developers are a target market, we want to, you know, we're in the friction removal business. And so we want to make it as easy as possible for them to get started. And we felt that open source was the right path for that. So um, those were the two main reasons we went that route. Makes sense. I guess another question might be, at what point do you kind of go open source? I imagine you could kind of try this out with a few friends, but at some point you decide to make a public GitHub repo and, and advertise yeah. it. Was it clear when to do that and how, how did you go about it? Definitely not at all. And I think the team fought us, me in particular, on it for a little while. I use the term fight like a little bit in jest. Like we were working on it for a good period of time, over six months before we open sourced it. I don't know whether people think that's too long or too short. We had already had a bunch of people kicking the tires on it. But like I think the team felt like they wanted more time and they wanted more eyes on it and more people to beat it up. And my outlook was... We're not saying the product is GA and the best way for more people to get more eyes on it. I mean, this is one of the reasons why, you know, I think developers can get more trust in open source software is because you can get more eyes on it. So if this is sort of the approach that we've taken, we might as well make the most of it. And so I was a fan of getting it out there sooner. Um, and of course, sure enough, like it ended up going, I think, even better than we'd hoped. And it's not like there were no major surprises. It wasn't like, you know, we found something and we were, you know, shocked and, oh, my God, you know, what was in there or something like that. It actually turned out pretty well. I don't think the decision is obvious. There's no real way. I think for us, the main factors that we were thinking about were, did we feel like we were circling around a core set of features that we thought would be useful to someone based on the people that we had been speaking with thus far? And did we feel like we could expose those in a way to people that we wouldn't necessarily be able to like meet one-on-one? -on -one? Like, did we feel like we could document them effectively in a way that someone could try them out on their own without speaking with us? And once we felt like we were getting to that point, it was like a month and we felt like that was in like maybe June and end of May or June of this year. And we developed a plan to open source it inside of like a month and a half. It was like, I don't know, five or six weeks. And we just went about doing it. And a big part of the plan after that was just to go and write a lot of docs. Yeah. You, you want to get it out as soon as possible, but not until it's self-service. I mean, you'd hate to kind of publish something that no one really can consume without you doing a lot of handholding. Yeah. And I don't think it needs to be perfect. I mean, I think people understand something that's early on and it's like life cycle the type of person that wants to look at that is the type of person that's going to like look a little bit more closely, but you can't, you know, you got to give them something to go on and you got to explain to them, you know, when do you use this and how should I think about using it and stuff like that. We made a big push on docs in particular. No, I, I hear the, the documentation is, is quite a hurdle. I think with a previous episode, we talked about documentation driven development, where as you're writing your docs, you're realizing, oh, actually, we, we, there's kind of a gap here we need to address. Oh, absolutely. We've done that before. We try to think about, you know, it's almost like the developer version of what some folks have done at like Amazon, where you might think about like, you know, writing their press release before you launch the thing, taking that down to like a technical level and thinking about writing the docs before you build the thing. And we've certainly gone down the path of writing the docs for a way that you would achieve something with the current version of the product 
before building like the feature that would enable you to do it sort of in the next iteration. I don't know if that makes any sense, but that is something that we're doing. <laughs> that almost brings us to the present day. Is that right? The launch was months ago? We did an open source launch, not like a huge splash of any kind. We basically, we emailed the folks that we'd been in touch with. We put something on Show HN. Uh, we did that at the end of July of this year, 2020. I imagine you have some idea, but don't really know what will come of a launch. Any surprises? You know, no, like massive surprises. I think, you know, we were all holding our breath like, oh my goodness, what if there's something that we've overlooked or something like that? And there wasn't anything like that. I'll say like one thing that was just like, just this amazing and like, I would say like beautiful change for me personally and for the team. We had spent the first seven months of the year, like kind of in a cave, figuratively in a number of senses. Okay. So we're, we're not developing out in the open. The website says almost nothing on it. We're meeting with people on a one-off basis. Anyone that we're talking to, we can basically trace how they found out about us back to someone that I specifically reached out to or something like that. And on top of all that, like we're all relatively isolated as a result of coronavirus. And then all of a sudden, there are people who are joining our Slack, tweeting about us, like random things that happened. We got dropped into some Japanese equivalent of Hacker News and we started getting like 20% of our traffic starts coming from Japan. We get dropped into like a Python newsletter where I was planning to submit a blog post that we'd written. And it turns out that someone had done it two weeks prior. This is like, a, you know, a few weeks after we'd launched. A couple of things after that, where it just sort of felt like there was like a real sense of gratification, which felt good for me. I think it felt really good for the team who had been working incredibly hard and really pours its heart into the product. Um, that like, wow, there's like people outside of this group that's like interested in what we're doing. They're like trying it and using it. They want to figure it out. And that, I guess we've just been so focused on launching it that we hadn't even thought about what it would feel like to do it. Yeah. Wild to kind of be discovering after the launch. Wait, that's right. Everyone knows about this now. Yeah. Our ideas are, are out in the open. Even still, we have people who drop into the Slack and we're like, because of the way that, you know, we, like I said, we're in the friction removal business. We don't ask people for their emails when they, you know, to like download anything, you know, when people follow us on Twitter or join our Slack or anything like that, we don't always know where they come from or anything like that. And so it's kind of like wild to find out, oh, you're using Oso. Like, how did you find out about us? And what are you using it for? And like, tell us about, you know, your use case and your situation and stuff like that. It's always a lot of fun. So going back to the product a little bit, I'm, I'm imagining kind of two broad arenas for authorization. And one being I'm building a product and I want to specify within the application who can do what. And then another might be I have I have a company with a bunch of like kind of internal tools and, and databases and I want to choose what employees can do what. You know, is that a bifurcation that's worth thinking about? And do you play in one more than the other? It's definitely a, like a relevant bifurcation. I think for one reason or another, we've definitely had more traction in the former category of companies who are building externally focused applications. There's There's not a ton of great reasons, honestly, why like um, you would necessarily care, you know, the authorization logic might necessarily look different between an externally focused application and an internal one. It is common sometimes that those internal applications are tied up in, depending on the company and like a legacy system based on something like, you know, LDAP or Active Directory or something like that. So that could be one reason. But a lot of the same patterns end up applying. People try to implement things like roles, they implement things like hierarchies and various other like authorization patterns. 
And part of the benefit of Oso is that you kind of give them these primitives. Uh, you know, you mentioned role-based at the beginning. You've talked about hierarchies and there are kind of other ways of thinking about authorization. Is that right? And, and you give them these kind of building blocks out of the box? Yeah, absolutely. So like, I think another good example that sort of represents a variety of different types of these patterns is like the GitHub authorization model. We actually like wrote a whole blog post about this because when we were first building the the very, very, very early versions of Oso at the beginning of the year, we basically picked like, what do we think is like a sufficiently complex use case where if we could make that simple, we would feel like we were building something that could be generic enough and useful to a broad enough group of people. And so we said, let's, let's build for GitHub. So, you know, in, in the case of GitHub, you know, there are orgs and there are teams and there are repositories. And so, like, there's just, there's a, a lot of very complex ways that you can think about um, how a given user might have access to a given piece of code. So examples that we've talked about already are like roles. And that's a very common thing that people reach for in the beginning. But the reality is like, Roles is kind of a crude way of construing authorization that only kind of gets you so far. Um, hierarchies is a very common one. So like we talked about, you know, you might be, let's say not even in the context of GitHub, but something that might be more accessible, you know, in Salesforce or an HR application, you might have a VP can see all the data and then a manager can see that team's data. And then the individual contributor can only see their individual data. You might have inheritance, which would be, you know, some super role can have all these permissions and then some subset of those roles can inherit those permissions, but maybe have, you know, offshoots of those roles. You might want to represent graph relationships, which might map more closely to how you think about the data model in your application. And so there are like all these different patterns is the word that I keep coming back to because they're just sort of things that just keep coming up over and over and over again in the users that we talk to and the kinds of things that they're trying to do in their applications. And so what we have right now is like a really nice way for them to express those things using Oso. And um, we're continuing to build out more and more building blocks so that all of that just gets like faster and faster and faster for them to do right out of the box. Awesome. And has the vision shifted over time? I imagine you have this idea at the beginning, we're going to do X and then you talk to people and then you go launch to open source and other people start talking. How does that affect kind of your plans? For us, the vision and the thing on which my co-founder and I have always been 100% aligned has been to put security in the hands of developers. This is like who we are as a company. It's the guiding principle behind all of our decision-making. And if you were to like take anyone at the company, wake them up in the middle of the night, shake them and ask them like, what is this company about? I can pretty much guarantee that that's what they would say. And it starts with authorization, which is just this problem that's been completely overlooked for a long time. But I think there's really like a, the thing that we've built around authorization which is at its core, this policy engine in this language, you could imagine actually using for a bunch of other use cases. The reality is authorization as a problem is such a big space that I think we'll easily spend a long time working on that alone. But just to give you an example, I mean, so the, the language that we built, which is called Polar, we had an internal hackathon about a month ago and a couple of developers on the team built a text-based adventure game with it. And we wrote a post about it on our blog. So there's actually quite a bit of things that you can do with it. I mean, other people have expressed interest in doing a lot of other things with this language. You can imagine that would extend beyond authorization. And so I think uh, while there's a temptation to sort of go 
outside of the core focus, which is authorization. I think, and I think we might get there in the future. We're focused on solving authorization for our users now. So you mentioned language, but you also mentioned that you you kind of offer these things as libraries specific to a programming language. Yeah, yeah. Basically, like the way that you would consume Oso is you write policies in our language, which is called Polar. So the policies, they're like pretty human readable. They'll say things, you know, like allow, and then it takes the format of an actor, an action, and a resource. So the actor could be like the user, the action could be read, and the resource could be like a document. So allow a user to read a document if, you know, they are the owner of that document. That could be like an example rule. And so you'd write that policy in Polar and it gets stored in a file. But then there's a, we have language libraries to integrate that with your application. So we currently support five languages, Python, JavaScript, well, specifically Node, Ruby, Java, and Rust. And so that's where the like actual application language bit comes into play. Got it. And I would use those, uh, if you want to call them client libraries, to kind of access my Polar files and, and, and apply them in certain situations. Got it. Polar is kind of like a domain-specific language of, of sorts. It's not like a, a Turing-complete kind of full-on programming language. Actually, it's funny. I mean, so I think because we're applying it to a specific use case, people often reach for the term domain-specific language, but it's actually more of a general-purpose programming language. It, it's based on something called Prolog, which is a logic programming language. Um, so, okay, so funnily enough, we're like exploring different solutions to this problem. This is like way at the beginning of the year. And over the weekend, one of our engineers, a guy named Alex, who you won't find on the internet because he's just not on the internet, but he's this like brilliant engineer who has a PhD in like, among other things, programming language design, not even the thing for which we originally hired him, but he's just this incredibly brilliant guy. And so we're exploring these different ways to solve these problems around authorization. And he like writes this little like compiler over the weekend. He's like, I wrote this little thing. I think it could be a nice way to solve this. Like, what do y'all think? And so I get in on Monday morning and like a bunch of the team is huddled around one of our engineers monitors being like, did you see this thing that Alex pushed on last night, Sunday night? So like, no, I didn't see this. And so this is actually really where like the origins of Polar itself started. And Alex is really an expert in prologue and a lot of the thinking and design comes from his background and expertise in it, basically like beaten against a number of other members of the team who come from like a more modern web development background. Um, and so what we did is we took this traditional language prologue, which is known to be like kind of impenetrable, like very powerful, but like not really that easy to use or get your head around and made it look and feel a lot more like something like Python or JavaScript. Um, and so we're using it for authorization, but you actually could use it for a lot of other things. Man, Alex must be so excited. I mean, there are so many engineers out there who want to write a programming language and don't really have the right use case for it or whatever. But how, how awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. Like when we thought about building the team for the company, in some respects, I think it was luck. And in some respects, I think we were doing the right things, which is we were not looking for people with specific sets of expertise in one thing or another, because I think, you know, startups change direction. That's a thing that happens. I mean, it certainly happened in our case over the last two and a half years. But, you know, we have Alex, who has this incredibly relevant set of expertise. We have another engineer on the team named Steve, who has done, <laughs> as it turns out, he's written a bunch of lexers and parsers 
and loves to work on programming languages. And he's one of the engineers who built that text-based adventure game. And, and really, you know, if, if I can brag for a bit, I mean, all, you know, all the engineers on the team have just made it, I think, because it's the kind of thing that engineers can easily get excited about, you know, building a programming language have really just poured their heart into this. And I'd like to think that that really shows in the end experience for, for our end users. Obviously, we have, you know, a way to go. The project's very early, you know, compared to, you know, a lot of other open source projects out there. But but I think they really care. Oh, yeah. Well, and as a bit of an aside, part of the reason I do this podcast on open source projects and not startups, for example, because I spend a lot of time on startups, is that I think the startup focus is all around the, the generally the purpose of the startup creating monetary value, growth. Where I think with an open source project, just building something useful and beautiful in some cases is the end and means and, and purpose. And so certainly very exciting that you've got a p- perfect group to put together. Sounds like a, a great solution. Yeah, we're excited. Like I said, still still tons of work to do. And we love getting feedback on it. Um, we love having people who come in and read a bunch of people asking us questions about different ways to do things in the Slack just before I was joining and I was following along. You know, we love having people who file GitHub issues and ask us, you know, when will you support this or can you try this that way or the other way or whatever. So, I mean, that's another really nice benefit of doing things in this way is I think it encourages a different kind of engagement with the community, which I think is pretty gratifying for everyone on the team. Right. Less transactional. Like, what are you offering me for what value? It's more like, hey, here's this thing we're working on together and everyone's chipping in. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Graham, thanks so much. Anything we missed that we should have covered today? Yeah. I mean, certainly if anyone wants to get involved, by all means, our docs are available at OSUHQ.com. We have a Slack. We're on GitHub. We love to have folks contributing and filing issues, as I mentioned. And of course, we're hiring. Right. Yes. And and you get to, you know, maybe design your own programming language. Actually, I, I, Graham, I had a question written down that I forgot to get to, if, we, if you have a second. And back to the comparison game, I recently did a show with on open policy agent and i i I recognize that what you're doing is different i think but i I don't know that i could put it in good words as well as probably you could um is that a comparison that ever comes up absolutely so i have a lot of respect for what the folks at and i don't know if i'm going to pronounce it right styra or styra the folks behind the opa project i think there's like a smart group of engineers over there um and they seem to be doing some really good work the main pieces of feedback that we've heard and the, the way that we view the primary differences between OSO and OPA are as follows. So one, in, in terms of use cases, we see OPA primarily being used um, for Kubernetes authorization. That seems to be sort of their like core use case. That definitely seems to be the main commercial focus for the company behind it, whereas OSO is primarily focused on application authorization. And so Behind that, there's like a couple main reasons for the difference, I think. One, uh, OSU is deployed as a library, which is a really developer-friendly way to get started, whereas the most common way to deploy OPA, my understanding, is as a standalone service, like a, a sidecar. So that just creates a different getting started experience. Um, and then two, the way that data is handled, basically because of that, all those things that I was talking about earlier, the way that authorization decisions require access to application data because OSO is um, tightly integrated with the application, it immediately has access to all of that application data. Whereas in the case of OPA, it's on the developer to sort of figure out how to get that data over to OPA. 
So I think it's just sort of like focus the use cases in different directions. Perfect. Yeah, no, I I think when we talked about OPA a bit back, it sounded like they started kind of general purpose and they could have gone many directions and have really, as you mentioned, kind of found a, a niche and a following within, like you said, Kubernetes cloud native authorization. Graham, again, thank you for doing this today. It, it was fun, actually, when we when we connected on whether we should do this show to hear that we, we had a lot of mutual contacts and I expect we'll keep running into each other. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. You can find today's show notes and past episodes at contributor.fyi. Until next time. I'm Eric Anderson, and this has been Contributor.